0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Garrett Broad of Rowan University, and I'm thrilled to be your host for this conversation with Janet Charzan, Ph.D., a nutritional anthropologist who serves as adjunct assistant professor of nutrition at the University of Pennsylvania. Janet is the author of Anxious Eaters, Why We Fall for Fad Diets, along with Kimma Cargill, a professor of psychology at the University of Washington, Tacoma. What makes fad diets so appealing to so many people, and how did these fads become so central to conversations about food and nutrition? These are the key questions that motivate anxious eaters, a wide-ranging, engaging, and deeply researched work by our guest today. Janet Charzan, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Thank you. It's an honor to be here.
0: So to get us started, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your professional background? Certainly.
1: Um, I'm a nutritional anthropologist, so I'm trained in both nutrition and in anthropology. And within anthropology, I guess you would say I'm a physical or a biological, biocultural anthropologist, and I focus on food. And what I'm interested in is how um, our social systems channel the foods we eat and how then those foods affect our health. So uh, I ask questions about maternal and child health, for instance. I ask questions that are a little fluffier about, like, how does tourism affect what we eat and our health? What, what about learning new foods? Um, and other aspects of medical anthropology, such as uh, research in alcohol use.
0: Interesting. And then this book, Anxious Eaters, how did you come to this project in particular with your, with your co-author, Kim Cargill?
1: Well, Kim and I attend uh, the same conference every year, the Association for the Society of Food the Association for the Study of Food and Society, which is a wonderful conference. And we talk all the time. We did a couple of panels together and we realized that we were asking a lot of the same questions about food and why we choose food, but we were coming at it from really different perspectives. And so we each had something to bring to the table that would kind of enliven and enlarge. Uh, are are not only the questions we ask, but potentially the kinds of answers that we might come to that by taking a a more cross disciplinary approach that we could cover this in a in a manner that might be a little uh, more realistic, a a way of getting at human behavior uh, through a series of lenses.
0: And you mentioned it's very interdisciplinary. You're all over the place in this book, from psychology and anthropology to uh, nutrition science. So how did you go about bringing all this together? What was the research approach? What what was the methodological approach?
1: Right. Um, What we brought to the table was our own research. So Kimma has done a lot of work on consumerism. She is uh, a union trained um, psychologist, and so she's very interested in asking questions about um, what the human psyche is about and how uh, how it's motivated. Um, I am actually a biologist and uh, a nutritionist, and so um, that I'm always asking questions from my studies in biochemistry. Um, you know how how do how do foods affect our our bodies and our health? But it's very uh, easy to focus on that without understanding how we get food. And so, as an anthropologist, um, I have to look at the systems and the complexes, the economies, and the um, cultural beliefs and behaviors that bring whatever it's on our plate to our plate that make it acceptable for us to eat. And so that really is multidisciplinary. So I think that's part of probably anthropology as well. I was trained at four field approach, which definitely comes out in the book.
0: And let's get to it. The the subtitle for the book is Why We Fall for Fad Diets. There are all sorts of dietary practices out there. This book is about fad diets. So what is it that makes a particular dietary practice or a particular diet a fad diet? Right.
1: So for understanding fad diets, we used uh, the Pennington Biomedical Research Group fad diet definition, which uh, involves seven, uh, seven points. It asks the user to eliminate one or several food groups, promises quick results such as five or more pounds of weight loss a week, uses personal testimonies as proof of effectiveness, Uh, Use only certain or special foods that claim to offer advantages for weight loss. Recommend supplements or pills are endorsed or advertised by a celebrity, and usually do sound too good to be true. And I can boil this down to uh, makes improbable claims about efficacy and asks you to change your food rituals. You're being asked to buy something different or special as a means of uh, enhancing your health or losing weight or whatever your goal might be. So um, ultimately, a fad diet is something that asks you to change what you're eating in order to, I think, reach a goal that might not be directly connected to that particular food.
0: Mm-hmm. And as you noted to the, the sort of celebrity and media culture part of this, that seems to be central. But is that is it sort of a, a, a big part of it, but not necessarily necessary um, to have that kind of, because a lot of times when I think of fad, I'm also thinking of the mediated aspect. Somebody's making a lot of money off of this as well. It's being marketed. So does a fad diet have to be marketed in that way through media and celebrity, or, or, or are there examples of fad diets that maybe don't have that media marketing apparatus behind it?
1: No, I would absolutely say that there has to be some marketing, and uh, because these are driven. If you read them, and we read so many books, and uh, interviewed a lot of people. If you read these books, they are clearly, uh, they are are designed to be marketing behemoths. And you can see that definitely in things like the Whole30 or the Atkins empire. And all of this comes back to the original fad diet, William Banting in the 1850s, I think, who advocated for a low carbohydrate diet based uh, on recommendations from his doctor. And he did indeed have type two diabetes. And so this helped him. And he went on to self-publish and to uh, use a lot of self-testimonies to create the Banting Diet. And for a long time, if you were dieting, you weren't dieting, you were doing Banting. And I think that and we and and these diets keep cycling back to kind of that same trajectory. So it's hard for me to think of a fad diet that doesn't have somebody's name attached to it. Atkins, the wall protocol, the whole 30. Okay, that's maybe a little different. But it has some kind of a name that's easily identifiable and marketable.
0: As you mentioned, that there's so many different diets that are featured in this book, and it sounds like you just spent uh, years and years reading through all these different, you know, books and cookbooks and websites and things like that. But uh, you note know, in the book that why all of the while all of these fad diets, they might appear radically different on the surface. You might have some saying, you know, cut out all meat, and you might have others saying eat only meat and everything in between. Uh, you argue that despite these radical differences, they're all driven by the same engine. Um, So let's start there. What is that engine? What is the same engine?
1: Right. Self-transformation. And that's something that is particularly powerful, we believe, in the United States. We have a lot of narratives about transforming the self, rags to riches. Um, Kim is particularly interested in how consumerism is tied in with these stories of self-transformation and rags to riches, that by buying something you can improve. a lot of times these fad diets, part of the self-transformation I've noticed, is also rooted in um, either a, a desire to be healthy or a fear of food that might create a system in which you're not healthy. So a lot of the narratives about these fad diets are uh, are really triggering fears um, that if you, if you don't utilize a certain protocol, that you could be in danger. Um, but we grouped the fad diets into the various bunches that we did and other people might group them very differently because we felt that they had some kind of epistemological um, connection Mm -hmm. so obviously uh, food removal diets uh, they remove a macronutrient or something that's assumed to be a macronutrient like most people think gluten is a carbohydrate it's not it's a protein Um, but a food removal diet is not something like vegetarianism or veganism um, those are food processed diets, and actually they're not fad diets at all, really. They might act like a fad diet if you're 14-year-old that comes home and decides to be a vegan and throws the household into turmoil because he, his or her or their friends are doing this, but um, these are deep, uh, deep-seated deep practices that are far more comprehensive and systemic than simply a food removal or a carbohydrate or- can, can come back to come so you said
0: there's a it's a processed diet as opposed to a, a, a fad diet is that is that the term you use
1: I would say that and I you know what does I that would,
0: mean what is a processed diet
1: to me it would it means that you're engaging with the food system processes in a particular kind of way so you are abjuring meat for instance if you're a vegetarian because you uh, believe that the processes usually of meat production might be uh harmful to the animals, which they most certainly are, <laughs> or harmful to yourself, or harmful to other ecological systems. Um, for This is the same rationale that goes into a lot of veganism, I think. But Aside, so it's outside. It's it's the context of that practice rather than the essential nutritionism. To use a phrase that uh, hopefully um, we understand, that is that idea that you're going to essentialize a food into some component that we think has uh, has a critical role to play in it. So, right, right as was... a carbohydrate, yeah.
0: That was Skrinus's term that yes. Holland uh, popularized. Um, and and I think that's interesting in terms of there are, I, I think one of the things you, you demonstrate in this book is this compassion throughout, even as you're being deeply critical of them and, and trying to understand the logic in all of these diets. So, you know, before you were talking about they're all kind of driven by the same engine, this this promise of self-transformation that you offer a lot of critiques of, um, but you say that these diets make sense. Uh, they make a kind of sense, I should say. Uh, so how, how do these things that, that you think, Oh, you're saying, Oh, people think carbohydrates are this, or people, you know, get this wrong about this food removal diet, or as we'll get into some of the really wacky things. Um, how do they make sense when, when there's a lot of wackiness and a lot of, as you also talk about things like pseudoscience?
1: Well, most of them don't make any biological sense whatsoever, um, but they make social sense. They make cultural sense. And that's because they use cultural narratives that we already accept about, for instance, health or identity or self-transformation or how to be um, a, a good citizen. Uh, they, they play on those narratives in such a way that they make a lot of cultural sense. So um, food addiction, for instance, comes directly from the models that we have about alcohol and other forms of like opiate addiction. And it uses the same narratives. It uses the same stories. And that tells me that those stories are very important to our culture. Uh, They might not be quite so important in other cultures, but to our culture, that's a deeply normative and a deeply meaningful Um, uh, way of understanding the world. So as an anthropologist, of course we have to, and and I would say as a psychologist for Kimma, we have to bring compassion to the table um, because it's not really about the food. It's about a whole series of other things and a series of motivations that are are getting at how people feel about themselves. And so while their practices might sound kooky, uh, if you're a nutritionist, I recognize that the people who are practicing those things are worried about something.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Throughout the book, the, the book is, is really separated into these different sections. As you know, you have found these categories, even as there's some diversity in some of these diets. Um, so I'd love to go through some of these. You've already mentioned a few of them, but would love to drill down just a little bit more into a few of them. So we'll, we're going to talk about food removal diets. We're going to talk about food addiction. We're going to talk about clean eating, um, a- among others. But let's return to the, the food removal diet, because that's a, that's a big one. We see this, you say, you know, kind of most diets have some element of food removal uh coming to to them and you're very critical not just of uh some of the the lack of logic when it comes to the nutritional side but also the social side so so what do you see as the social costs of food removal diet fads
1: yeah. Well, the social cost, I think, is quite obvious. As an anthropologist, I'm about social systems, and I'm, it's important that we eat together. That's actually what my research is about. And it's really hard to eat with other people if you have removed a macronutrient from your diet. Um, it is really hard to sit down at a Thanksgiving table and and uh, abjure all grain, or if you have gone completely keto. Um, and it's very hard to go out and have a dinner with someone and to participate in social rituals if your diet becomes so uh, restricted that you cannot really get something off a menu. If you can't eat at granny's house, right? <laughs> because granny's cooking things that uh, you are afraid of or you want to avoid. It's very hard for granny to understand, but it's also very hard for you to be a family member. So this is why the, many of these diets, people will adopt them for a little while. Um, in many cases, they feel better because sometimes they're eliminating foods that might make them feel not so good, like eating a lot of processed foods in place of whole foods. If you, re, if you replace that with things with lots of fiber, you're going to feel better. Um, but it's very hard as time goes by. If you want to be social and and there's significant research that demonstrates that. And and it's really within a six month to 12 month period. If you take it out to 18 months, you see that people, most of the research, not my research, but what we reviewed, that, that most people really have a hard time keeping these things going
0: until they move on to the next one right because yes. that's that's also a big part of what you talk about is how you know you, we all know those folks maybe some of our listeners are those, those folks and again we want to be compassionate towards everybody here but you know I'm keto today and then 3 months from now I'm doing something completely different and oh I'm off gluten now and I'm off this why, why do you think there is that kind of jumping from diet to diet and it seems like food removal diets maybe in particular have this kind of trendiness to them for folks.
1: Yeah, yeah. This is a conversation Kim and I had so many so many times, and so much of this book really was about the two of us talking uh, over the course of many years. Um, I think that we're primed to believe that uh, restriction is good. Um, Kim would say it's the Protestant uh, ethic, this uh, asceticism that is a part of... Uh, Christianity. Um, I I don't know. It's as, as a food anthropologist, I think it's part of other religious systems as well. But um, I think Kimma would argue, and I, I think I would. Probably agree that we do carry this to an extreme that the uh, um, Protestant work ethic and this idea that by giving things up, you are going to prevail, that you're going to be better, that you're going to improve yourself, that you're going to be a better person, that you're going to get into heaven better or something is maybe uh, something that... uh, Americans believe or can believe a little better than others. I don't know, I, I, I wouldn't stake my, my profession on that, but um, it seems to me that it's an, a kind of underlying value in the United States. So giving things up is good. Um, and so it, it must be good for us if we give things up. And therefore a diet that asks us to give things up is probably a good diet because it'll be good for us. It's, it becomes very circular.
0: But so so that means if you know if I didn't achieve that social transformation by giving up gluten, maybe that that enlightenment will come if I give up pro- other processed foods, or if I give up meat, or if I give up something else.
1: Absolutely, you've
0: nailed it. Yeah. Yeah, so- yeah I mean it's it's interesting too, right? I think there are a lot of folks who. Kind of sample religions in a somewhat similar way, or maybe sample you know professional uh, professional pursuits. So as you've kind of you know already noted that this isn't just about a, a food exploration through food. It's using food as this tool for self exploration for, uh, for 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 self enlightenment or, or the goals of enlightenment.
1: Yeah. One of the things that we state at the beginning of the book um, and that really was the wind in our sails is that we're focusing not on the content of the diet, but on the context of the diet. Um, it's not a diet book um, because uh, that wouldn't really be appropriate. And Columbia certainly didn't want something like that. Um, we just really wanted to work our way around each of those diets, um, asking questions about, you know, what what does this diet do for people? And obviously, I, I do write a little bit about the nutritional aspect because we can't step away from that. Um, but that's not the focus of the
0: book. And you've already mentioned a little bit the, the language of food addiction, uh, but would love to return to that and hear a little bit more about that. You, you think maybe there's something about the kind of American psyche around addiction specifically, but um, this comes up so much. What is it about addiction that it's such a prominent frame? Uh, and, and it seems like something that in your writing that, that a lot of folks feel almost, uh, almost relieved to, to, to feel like they have an addiction in a kind of paradoxical way
1: yeah yeah and I think I might have been a little primed to think through addiction because i I taught a harm reduction class on alcoholic pen for well over a decade, and i I ended up writing a book uh, was it social drinking and cultural context that came out about a decade ago. Um, so I've spent a lot of time thinking about addiction, interviewing a lot of people in recovery. Um, and doing a lot of cultural analysis of what addiction uh, and the addiction narrative looks like in the United States. And it's, again, it's a self-transformative narrative that's deeply embedded in in how I think we think about ourselves, because the AA model, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous model says that you're going to hit bottom and then you're going to change. And with the help of AA and giving up alcohol and the help of your uh, 12 step uh, program and the the people involved, because they're very important, that you're going to turn around and it's like a Horatio Alger story, that you're going to then return to um, to economic and social uh, success and good citizenship. You're going to, again, be an exemplar of your culture. And uh, I think that that, that narrative is, is very powerful. Um, and the stories that surround AA are very powerful, and they obviously work for a lot of people, which is wonderful. Um, and so it, it makes perfect sense that people will then adopt that language to talk about food desires and urges. And um, I read, of course, I've read the big book, the AA big book, and, and the, the big book for NA. And then I read the the big books, the F, uh, what is it, Food Addictions Anonymous and Food Addicts Anonymous. There's a couple, there's a number of different special off groups for food and what struck me having read all the aa literature deeply and multiple times was how much it absolutely mirrored the language the stories were the same if you could t- you, you could take out you know wheat or, or a baguette and put in alcohol and it was the exact same story that you read in the big book and um so that tells me that there's something really important cultural culturally that's going on there, that is a narrative that's deeply resonant in our society.
0: But is it addiction? Uh, because because that was a, a very interesting, I thought, in the book, that, that you and your co-author were quite open in several parts, but I think specifically in this part about maybe not being 100% on the same page in terms of your conclusions. So um, could you talk to us about whether you think food addiction is a real addiction um, and, and tell us a little bit about how that kind of uh, uh, maybe, I don't want to say disagreement, but, but somewhat difference of interpretation played out between you and your co-author.
1: Yeah, well, absolutely. We had a lot of fun with this. Um, food addiction is really complicated. Um, First and foremost, no, you're not addicted to carbohydrates. We absolutely have to have carbohydrates. Uh, Glucose fuels the brain. Without glucose, your brain shuts down. We need carbohydrates. And there's really not a lot of evidence that any of the basic uh, chemical constituents of basic food has any addictive qualities whatsoever. They do simply do not bang the uh, receptor drums that alcohol and opioids do in the brain. And there's very specific receptors that respond to alcohol and opioids and other um, of those very well-known addictive substances. We know how that process works food simply doesn't work that way. Now, to put on a medical anthropology hat, however, we acknowledge that we live in our bodies and we we have this embodied reality and so i would say as a medical anthropologist that if you believe you have an addiction to something you are going to behave as if you have an addiction to something and therefore you are indeed addicted to that thing even if there's no biological addiction the way that it, you might be to alcohol or opioids so that's kind of a very fine line there because i'm saying a no you're not addicted but b You are mentally addicted. And so there's psychological work that really classifies food addiction as a behavioral addiction. You're addicted to eating, not addicted to any of the nutrients. And that's interesting because when you read the books and talk to people who have what they term food addiction, they see themselves as addicted to an essentialized nutrient within the food. So they don't see themselves as having an eating addiction. They see themselves having a substance addiction.
0: I'm addicted to sugar. I'm addicted to carbs or bread or whatever.
1: Right. And that, you know, I'm not going to tell them they're not physically, biophysically, um, but uh, they have an addiction process the same way people might be addicted to gambling, you know, Um, and I think that there is some interesting research coming out about highly processed foods and how those seem to bang some drums, not necessarily the same addiction uh, drums, but that they bang some desire drums in a way that uh, want you to eat more and more and more. Now, Kimma started off believing very strongly that we were addicted to highly processed foods. And then in the course of doing the reading for this, she, I think, changed her mind. That, you know, even the, the concept of, a, of an eating addiction is rather problematic. Um, and so uh, we just agreed to disagree, you know. Um, and, and that's fine because I really think that there's a lot more work to be done on this topic And, um, you know, it might turn out that there are chemicals, highly processed chemicals in food that do indeed create some kind of an addiction response. I don't know. Uh, I'm not doing that research. Um, But I think that there are people that are trying to find that out. And uh, on the other hand, I could certainly argue that there's there's the potential for an eating addiction, a psychological eating addiction. Um, And so but from the medical anthropology standpoint, if somebody says they're addicted, I have to really listen to them and believe them. And as you so kindly put it, have the compassion to hear where they're coming from um, and recognize it as real to them.
0: Just as a little bit of a sidebar, I think, you know, we have a lot of listeners who are writers and authors and and maybe have thought about or have engaged in co-authoring and, and collaborating What is it like when you you said, you know, we had fun with it and we agreed to disagree, but, you know, how how do you come to uh, a sort of consensus about how you're going to approach a topic like this where there is some difference of interpretation?
1: Well, we wrote slightly different sections (laughs) and then decided to meld them, you know, and it's kind of come together at the end of that chapter and just lay it out that we really saw this rather differently. But I think that that also represents the state of the science. And so that's okay um, you know, she was reading a set of literatures, uh, from her field. I read some of it. Um, and I was reading a set of literatures from other fields and we, and, and then of course in medical anthropology, again, we have, we have to go back to that emic perspective that somebody feels that they're addicted, they have a problem. They're going to behave as if they are, you know, I think the, the, the research about priming behavior is pretty clear. If, if, You, for instance, like chocolate, and I were to say to you, well, I'm a nutritionist, and I happen to know that most people who like chocolate are actually addicted to chocolate and can't stop eating chocolate, the next time you enjoy that piece of chocolate, that's going to run through your head, and you might say, oh, my gosh, I can't stop eating this. Whereas in reality, you're perfectly capable of putting the chocolate bar down. So um, once again, when you look at the context of these things, I think you come up with a set of behavioral patterns that might be indicative of, of a real problem.
0: Great. Yeah. So oh, that makes sense. <laughs> no, definitely, definitely, and I think, uh, as you note, the there's there's a a lot I think still to be explored, as well as just some fundamental differences in in definition right uh, around a term like addiction you know there is the the strict biomedical definition and then there is the you know historian and sociology and anthropology of science uh, uh, definition and i think they both have value but i think it's useful to be very clear about how are we employing that term in a given moment and i think that's something that you folks do a nice job of in, in the book thank you um, Oh,
1: one of the things that came to mind, and I'm forgetting the name of the the fellow who wrote the, this a very informative article, um, the concept of habituation. It used to be that in the United States, people believed that you were habituated to being drunk. You weren't addicted to alcohol. You were habituated. You liked being drunk, so you kept doing it. And again, I'm sorry, I've forgotten the name of the, the very excellent article that... Um, this was about it was written some time ago, um, but I think that might be one way to think about food addiction is that uh, it as an habituation process. Um, I don't know if others would agree, but uh, given my background research in alcohol, it made sense to me.
0: Mm hmm. So great. So continuing to look at some of the specific uh, uh, chapters and, and categories you looked at, uh, I was really drawn to the clean eating chapter, um, having done a little bit of work looking at, at some of these trends in myself. Um, and so let's start with some basic definitions. What does it mean to eat clean? And what does that desire for cleanliness really represent?
1: You're getting to the core of it. Um, I don't think, as I said in the book, I don't think there's really any tremendously good definition of clean, which is why it's so valuable, because you can stick that word on any product that you're selling. And so whoever sees that, they're going to take it as they understand clean and buy your product. Um, It is a very, very wifty concept. And even the Clean Eating magazine and all of the various books that I read, they have they have different definitions. And over time, it's become more stringent as most of these diets have. But I think most people would say that it's uh, it, that it, it, it's eating uh, food that's whole, maybe food that's doesn't have stuff in it. That kind of comes back again and again. I did research on organics uh, eaters and uh, the, this overwhelming fear of what might be in your food. And so I think part of what drives clean is this idea that there's stuff in the food that's going to hurt us, which may or may not be true, right? Um, but, and that we if we avoid that stuff that might hurt us, uh, that, that we'll be clean. And clean, of course, is a very powerful word uh, socially right? It's a very dichotomizing word. Um, you thump something is either clean or it's dirty. And so rather than having a spectrum, which most things are on, as we know, it allows you to uh, epistemologically batch stuff, food in your head in a way that gives you a kind of moral superiority as long as you're eating whatever it is you think that's clean. And I think your idea of clean might be different than my idea of clean. I don't
0: know. It, it, it does seem like the clean eating fad is particularly marketable, um, and and could you talk a little bit about what what you saw in your work around, you know, who are the sort of big voices of clean eating, and and what are, what does that tell us? Um, any any particular examples or celebrities or spokespersons that you think stick out and really represent things?
1: Well, we can't get away from Gwyneth
0: Paltrow. All right. I didn't want to say Goop, but talk about Goop. Tell us about Goop and, and Goop's relevance here.
1: Well, um, and actually, uh, Columbia has a very complicated peer review process. We I've never been peer reviewed as much as I was by them. They did a phenomenal job and had really good reviewers. Um, but one of the reviewers made me rewrite the section on, on Gwyneth. Um, I was a little harsh, I, apparently. Um I think that uh, besides uh, Goop and the set of products that Goop Retails. The Goop shopping site online is a stunning thing to view. You also see clean coming up as a concept with a lot of other diets. So, Whole 30 and the Hartwigs um, come to mind because the Whole 30 diet has simply taken a whole bunch of other diets, Atkins and little bits and bobs from uh, the South Beach diet and the Wall Protocol and Gundry, and smooshed them all together together and said to people, well, give up all of this food that's dirty for 30 days and you'll feel better. Um, and uh, so that that has become I think this idea that clean is something that you give up things. I mean goop has a 30day detox every January where they um, they, they provide a, a set of foods that you're not supposed to eat and if you go into the archives of goop you find that those foods have become more and more restrictive as the time has come forward So um, and and the latest cookbook that I reviewed for this, a volume that was written by Gwyneth Paltrow um, really makes it clear that there's no, there's no, I think there was no, meat, there was no alcohol, there was no uh, wheat, there was no this, there was no that, and I was thinking, oh my god, you've taken away joy in life, you know, <laughs> um, and, because it was very clean, and, and the graphics were very clean, they were white, they were light, uh, there were whole foods, um, and so, and, and whole vegetables. Um, so I, I don't know that I can be really clear about clean, because I think that it really becomes something that is meaningful based on the individual hearing it
0: how much of this is is really about thinness and 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 how much of the clean eating fad it just seems like there's so much overlap with with potential for disordered eating, uh, with fat stigma, with fat phobia. Um, so talk to me a little bit about that. How, how can I make sense of, is clean eating just a way for people to get thin and, and put a a kind of moral valence to that? Um, obviously that doesn't have to be the, the only thing there, but it seems like there's a whole lot of, of fat stigma, fat shaming, fat phobia that that's central to the clean eating trend in particular.
1: Yeah, and uh, I think that that clean eating trend is part of the wellness trend. And the wellness trend, as many people have published, is is really uh, the second generation of it's good to be thin, without saying thin because now that's considered um, rather uh, socially unacceptable to be advocating for the thin body when we have uh, we have health at every size, which of course is a great movement, and and um, and one can be healthy at every size. So one is supposed to stay away from fat phobia, but of course it is, and I think. Uh, Uh, one of the best writers on this is lindy west who did just uh, a brilliant set of analyses and 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 very approachable in their online essays about goop and wellness and her perspective she's so brilliant (laughs) such a great writer um and i found her her perspective to be just so valuable one of the things that she pointed out that comes up again and again with these diets is that they're very expensive and eating clean is extremely expensive. So it's really because it's whole ingredients, often specific kinds of whole ingredients, organic whole ingredients. And there's generally organic foods are more expensive than uh, conventionally raised foods. And so and then there's a lot of whole foods that take a lot of time. So they're not only expensive in terms of monetary uh Cost, but they're extremely expensive in terms of time cost. That, um, and so, really, the only people who can do these are the folks with time and folks with money who tend to be the privileged. And, and the privileged also tend to be thinner already, right? They tend to be healthier because, well, they have really good health care usually because they're privileged. Um, and so, this all, as you say, adds a moral valence to social class. And that's one of the core problems. Is it about thinness? Absolutely. But are we allowed to say it's about thinness? Are the advocates saying it's about thinness? No, they're saying it's about health. They're saying it about living your best life or living up to your potential.
0: We're living to 100 and, you know, that, yeah, the the optimization has become the kind of dominant language in a lot of these spaces. You've you've mentioned a couple times organic uh, as part of this, and and also write about non-GMO food consumption. Uh, you, you call them sort of a first step into the clean eating trend. What, what's going on there? What makes organic non-GMO so prominent in clean eating?
1: Yeah. Well, this comes from a couple things, uh, a lot of it having to do with conversations I've had with people. In 2007, I started a farmer's market outside of Philadelphia. Uh, it's a not-for-profit um, and I'm no longer on the board, but I can tell you it's still an excellent farmer's market with really great board members. <laughs> so, but over the course of now, however many years, Um, I have had so many conversations with customers, with producers, with farmers, um, about organics and about, um, why particular customers choose whatever foods that they might be choosing. And then as a nutritionist, of course, I have to, I have to hear what people are saying about their food choices. And one of the things that I find absolutely terrifyingly sad is just how afraid of food people are. And, um, that that so much of the uh, desire for organics and non-GMO is not systemic. It's not about the context. It's not about the health of uh, plants or animals or the ecosystem, which is my desire for perhaps purchasing those um, those goods, but. It, it is about a deep-seated fear of what's in the food and how it might hurt. That there, how, my, how it might hurt you. That there's an incredible pollutant in the food. That something in the food. And this is, of course, a very, very deep, deep-seated, primordial fear. Right. Uh, we're primates and we're omnivores, and so from the earliest times of our omnivorous life, we have to figure out what's not going to poison us. And so I think that this fear is very, in some ways, rational, um, but it's been truly monetized by, I think, some of the clean eating uh, advocates. Um, I was shocked when I queried and and did uh, a lot of interviews and uh, various um, uh, questionnaires on motivations for organic uh, purchases and found that what I had expected to find was a concern for the environment, because that was my concern. And that's also a concern in a lot of Germany and some other places where the research has been done. And what I found instead was very little concern about the environment. I an enormous amount of concern about avoiding bad things in food. Um, and I cancer.
0: I, cancer. People <laughs> people say cancer specifically. Cancer,
1: yes, uh, or sickness or whatever. I had people who say they've eaten organic for decades. Say to me, "Oh, I don't care about the environment; it doesn't really matter." And I'm thinking, "Oh my goodness gracious!" But yes, it does. And and so I was absolutely struck by by some of these responses that, to me, um, as a farming advocate uh, and as a Somebody who studied biochemistry and nutrition just didn't make sense. Because if you have a healthy environment, a healthy ecosystem, you have healthy animals and healthy plants, you'll have healthy food. And so that's the organic nexus for me, but that's not the organic nexus for most of the people I talk to.
0: Yeah, it's such an interesting tension. And it's something that I, I really must say, as I was reading this, I was really identifying, because this is, is balancing these two thoughts is something I've really struggled to do, um, which is on one hand, you know, there's a lot of good reasons to critique call it big ag, call it industrial food, right, about the the problems of eating too much unhealthy processed foods, about the environmental problems of the food system as we know it, certainly about the ethical problems when it comes to treatment of animals and workers and and others. Um, So we've got that, right? We agree with a lot of that that is often coming out in these clean eating books as they're railing against the, the food system as we know it. But then a lot of these same critics are spouting, you know, what you refer to and I would agree is Pseudoscience, um, you know, that is that is harmful, um, and that is you know just empirically wrong, and that can be sometimes really directly exploitative of people, of their wallets, uh, and of their minds, and of their of their mental health and well being. So what do we do here? <laughs> you know, what do we do as those of us who, you know, think, hey, there's, there's a good reason to want to change fundamental aspects of our food system to promote, you know, eating more healthy and, and more whole foods in certain ways, but also not falling into some of these traps of sort of this pseudoscientific uh, bunk. Um, how do you deal with that? And, and, and maybe you don't have a single answer there, um, but, but how have you thought through that? And, and what can those who find themselves in a similar bind to us do with that?
1: Yeah. In this situation, I think knowledge really is power. Um, and uh, when I was confronted and the producers, the farmers at the farmer's market were confronted by somebody who was asking questions, and I, I give some of these narratives in the book about, well, well, how do you farm? What's in the food? What's in the food? And the farmer has no idea how to answer to that because the farmer is doing a process that's very different than what's in the food. And, and so... I would try to mediate, but one of the things that I tried to uh, advocate for that the consumers would ask the farmers is, tell me how you farm, right? Uh, Tell me the system. How is it that you are farming rather than are there chemicals in this food? Because the farmer's answer to that is, yeah. There's nutrition in that food. There's chemicals, you know, it's made up of chemicals. Are you asking me if I put chemicals on, you know,
0: (laughs) and and so you talk about sprays is another one. People, did you spray this? And they're like, well, yes, but we spray it with certain things. And And then there was someone in the book who I think said, no, no sprays. You're 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 you know, you're sickening people, you're poisoning people. Right.
1: When I ask people what does organic mean, most of the time they can't answer, even people who are allegedly organics buyers. And, and so that really bothers me because I um, I think organics is a good idea, again, because of the health of farm workers and the health of the ecosystem. Um recently we've come to understand body burden and you know this is this is relatively new research so now we have another um, another reason to particularly for our children to feed organics if we can afford them <laughs> that's the problem because it does seem to decrease body burden but um, most importantly I think it decreases the burden on our ecosystem and it makes sure that our farmers are healthier
0: Can you just say body burden that might not be a term folks are familiar with what, what is that? Uh, with-
1: Breakdown metabolites from food that has indeed been treated with various kinds of chemicals, and some of the research that started really being published 10, 15 years ago showed that if you took uh, kids uh, or other people off of um, processed foods and off of uh, and, and onto an organic diet, uh, that the some of these breakdown metabolites—don't ask me what they are because I don't remember—are <laughs> um, are cleared out of the bloodstream. So, again, we don't know what the downstream of that, we don't know if those are good or bad, but um, this idea that there, we may be, uh, we may be in, encouraging some kind of a body burden. Now, the problem with the organics buying and clean eating is that it takes what is an ecological and social and economic problem and turns it into an individual problem solution. When, and and uh, obviously, Saz has done a very good work on, uh, what is it, Shopping Our Way to uh, Happiness or something. I've forgotten the name of his excellent book. Um, shopping Our Way to Safety, I think, um, which is this uh, inverted quarantine that uh, rather than getting involved in ensuring that our politicians keep our uh, environment clean, uh, thus making our food clean, we Try, we, we, we disengage with the social world and the political world, but when, then we hyper-focus on, our own, on what comes into the house. And of course, this is terrible in many ways because it's not solving the problem, but it's also a solution that might only be open to those who are economically advantaged. And yet we give it, as you say, a lot of moral valence. You're a good person if you eat organics. Well, what if you need to make $150,000 a year to eat organics? And that's only the top quintile of of U.S. uh, workers. So um, it leaves a lot of people out of being a good citizen, right, or a good food citizen. Um, But again, it's also not addressing the core problem, which is that this is an environmental problem that all of us together working together need to solve.
0: And then on on the other side of things, sort of in a in a in a in a kind of photo negative, in certain ways of the clean eating, you have paleo, um, and and you know if there's goop as the the kind of patron saint of clean eating, um, you know maybe it's maybe it's Joe Rogan or somebody like that uh, who might be the the patron saint of, of paleo. You mentioned uh, several other folks. I think you talk about Mike Sternovich a bunch in your book. Um, what is paleo? Where did it come from? Um, um, and then we can talk a little bit about what, what does it have to do with toxic masculinity, a term you use uh, frequently in, in the book. But but what is, what is paleo? Because it's not one thing, right? What is paleo and what are some of the roots of paleo? Yeah, kind
1: of like clean. Um, paleo is an imagined past, right? It is very much an imagined past imagined by our current values and what we currently uh, give importance to. Um, I have taught paleolithic nutrition uh it looks nothing like the paleo diet um and why not
0: what what is it about the the real paleolithic nutrition that's different from what we call paleo
1: because we're omnivores we eat Everything that we can possibly eat in the environment, <laughs> and we have historically. And um, if you, if we look at the evidence that we now have about what Neanderthals were eating, what our hominin ancestors were eating, um, it is very clear. Using good science, teeth analysis, bone analysis, um, coprolite, my favorite analysis, <laughs> that if you go back, you find that yes, indeed, people are eating grains. They're wild grains, or they're uh, uh, they're eating all kinds of tubers. They're eating whatever they can in the environment. We are omnivores and we have evolved out of fruit eating primates. Um, so the fact that we eat meat is because we got bigger brains than those fruit eating primates and we're better at hunting it down. Um, it is an evolutionary advantage because it provides things that we need to, to grow our brains right? So it's a a good thing for us to eat, although one can eat uh, in a perfectly healthy manner as a vegetarian. You don't have to have uh, meat to grow a brain. Um, So the paleo diet, again, because we're an omnivore, every a subspecies of uh, remains that we find had a diet that was determined by its ecological system rather than an innate human needs. We are omnivores. We're not like pandas. I think, what are they, eucalyptus or something? Yeah, is it eucalyptus? Okay, we're not pandas. Um, if it moves, we can eat it, pretty much. Um, and our primary job is to figure out what won't kill us and then eat that. Um, and so... The paleo diet was first the idea of a paleolithic prescription, a book from 1988, actually quite a good book, um, Eaton Boyden Connor, a medical doctor and two uh, anthropologists, biocultural biological anthropologists, I believe, and um, looking at what constructing a thought exercise on what we might have eaten as uh, as hunter-gatherers, using extant current hunter-gatherer groups as a way of analyzing their diets to, to sort of just point to. It, it's not definitive. It's a pointing to. And it found some really interesting things. Uh, guess what? A lot less sodium, a lot more potassium. Um, it didn't find that people were eating meat and nothing but meat. On the contrary, it found that meat and and meat-related foods were about 35%, depending upon the ecological system. Um, So it plays a role, but not uh, a critical role. However, um, that's not a book that is necessarily referenced enough by paleo advocates, (laughs) Um, and they tend to go back to this idea, um, what was it, Silma, I forget his name, Vlahadamir Stephenson from the 1930s, um, Weston Price, also publishing in the 1930s, um, and a series of other uh, writers, I think we can trace this one back to Banting as well, that uh, are really playing on the, uh, the cultural notion, the social notion that meat is good. We really value meat. You know the the roast beef of england um and uh americans eat a lot more meat than most of the rest of the people in the world it's it's we meet three times a day sometimes which is insane really um in comparison with our historical diet and and our our even our paleolithic diet so this is a cultural value that meat um is important and i think it was driven by the fact that it's really hard to find the uh, the archaeological remains of non-bone foods. So grains dissolve. It's hard to find it in the in the archaeological record. but what you know is what's left behind is the mastodon bone that has uh, what it, you know that has evidence of meat being sliced off. And so for people who don't delve deeply into the science, <laughs> it's easy to think that, well, bones are what's there, therefore they only ate what was attached to bones, and therefore we only ate meat.
0: But but unlike so many of the other diets you discuss in this book, men are really at the center here. So is that fair to say that that men and masculinity and narratives of masculinity are really at the center? Obviously not the whole of that movement, but at the center of it. So what what do you think is so you know, attractive to, to men, uh, among this, you know, many, this big menu of potential diets to choose from. Um, why is it that that is the one that's resonated so much with, with certain spheres of, of men, maybe men online in particular?
1: Oh boy. Yes. Um, well, because meat is made up of muscle and men want to be muscly. Hmm. <laughs> you I think are- therefore
0: I am I eat meat therefore I am muscle
1: exactly and um, so this narrative that if you want to grow your muscles and be a big man be a dominant man right um, you can dominate other men and of course women um, have access to um, mating opportunities as we say in biology <laughs> Um, it's better to be big, it's better to have those muscles. How do you build those muscles? Well, you lift weights and you eat meat. Um, and so that's really, I think, a big part of it. It's 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 very reductive. But then if you read Chernovich, um, Devaney, uh, and and their folks, um, you find that there is attached to meat a set of cultural values. They believe that men eat meat and that it allows them, because they're dominating uh, the animal and they're bigger and they're stronger, it is the essential thing if you're going to be a winner, if you're going to be uh, a male who is uh, in, in power. I'm trying to pick my words here very carefully. But a man, because to them, I think, in reading through much of these blogs and listening to some of this stuff, they identify masculinity with the right to dominate. And that's scary. I mean, I was very cranky when I was doing uh, the background research for that. And my husband, who is a very nice man, said, when are you going to finish writing that chapter? please?" <laughs> <You know? laughs>
0: yeah, it, it is interesting. I will say reading the book, it was the chapter where you folks got a little more actively political and a little more actively um I don't want to say you lost the kind of compassion that you had in other sections, but but there was a a higher level of kind of cultural concern even about about the the people behind this um, and and what their kind of cultural attachments and cultural motives were seemed that way, at least.
1: Yeah. And um, I, again, I've forgotten the name of the author, but there's a wonderful book called Paleo Fantasy uh, written by a biologist. And I think that she lays out uh, really quite brilliantly um, some of the, the thought exercises that lead to the acceptance of this, this paleo diet and how it really just reverberates and reiterates some of the fantasies and the insecurities that, uh, that people have, particularly men. Now, obviously there are a lot of women that are interested in paleo. And I find that there was a real community online of women who were interested in paleo because they, they wanted to be healthier and they wanted to make sure that their families were healthier. So this narrative that you know, you're not eating, you're eating this food that our species was meant to eat and therefore we would be healthy and my children will be healthy and I will be healthy. Um, it was more of the the narrative that you see in some of these, particularly the cookbooks, the family friendly paleo cookbooks. Um, but uh, if you go online and read some of these male advocates, it's a it's just a cornerstone. I mean, you're you're some kind of a sissy boy if you are um, eating anything other than a very uh, profound red meat diet.
0: Yes, of course, the Soy Boys. Um, and that was uh, that was Marlene Zook, I believe, uh, is the paleo fantasy. So um, moving towards a, a landing here, this has been such a, a wonderful conversation. And I want to uh, move to a question um, that uh, that you noted earlier on in this conversation that this book is not about telling people what to eat, but I am sure that you are constantly asked, what should people eat? Uh, what should I eat? You know, whether at the farmer's market or the grocery store or a book talk or whatever it is. So I'm not going to ask you to tell me what we should eat, but I'm actually more interested in how do you respond when people, I assume people uh, ask, ask you, uh, how should they eat? So how do you respond to that question?
1: Well, as a nutritionist, this is actually what I I am interested in, in driving, um, you know, a better diet. Um, The easy answer, I think, is that the Mediterranean diet has been shown to have some significant health um, consequences, very positive ones. And derived from the Mediterranean diet, you have the DASH diet, which is a a hypertension diet, and the MIND diet, which is um, uh, to uh, increase uh, cognitive potential or to decrease the potential for dementia. Um, The Mediterranean diet is a diet that allows you to eat pretty much with your friends and family all the time. Um, But What it does is it emphasizes eating whole foods, Right. And in uh, particular, decreasing amounts of uh, some processed foods, decreasing amounts of red meat and red meat fat Um, doesn't take them out of the diet, which is what's important. All things in moderation, but uh, it shifts you towards whole grains um, and uh, a number of foods that we know are anti-inflammatory, whole vegetables, the olive oils, etc. It's also I think it is easy to follow. The one thing that I would also say is that we tend to essentialize nutritionism, as you mentioned, Yagi Skrinas' work. Um, and and I, would think, I would say as a nutritionist that that's not a good way to think about it. Think about not the food that you're eating, but think about it over the course of a day or a week. So that it might be that you go to a birthday party and you enjoy that piece of chocolate cake. Well, that's a once in a while food, a party food. Enjoy it right? It's going to make you happy to enjoy it. But recognize that maybe the next day you're not going to eat chocolate cake (laughs) or you're not going to have the potato chips. It's always about portion size and frequency. And so if you can just shift your diet into more whole foods, particularly foods with fiber, they do a lot of good things in our body. Um, Not only do they uh, have connections with increased serotonin for better mental health, but they, uh, they improve the microbiome of the gut, which has significant consequences. We're really only starting to understand to our overall health. Uh, We evolved eating a lot more fiber. We know that because hominins have teeth that are kind of ground down from eating fiber. So, um, you know, we don't have pointy little canines like wolves, where we really did not evolve eating nothing but meat. We need fiber. And we just don't, uh, most Americans don't get enough fiber. And so that that is becoming a critical issue. Um, and I would say that, uh, you know, drink more water. Um, when people ask me, what uh, what they should do? I say, really, I don't want you to eat, drink any soda pop or any even uh, even sugar-free soda pop unless it's like a party food. You know, you have your everyday foods, your once-a-week foods, your once-in-a-while foods, your party food. Um, it's better to to avoid those uh, that those kinds of foods because it, it really is just empty calories that can have negative long-term consequences to overstimulating the insulin response. So, you know, lots of fiber, a balanced diet, uh, enjoy your food with other people, right?
0: Yeah, I'm sorry, you're not going to make a lot of money selling that diet. So uh, (laughs) but uh, but you've you've really enriched our uh, understanding here in this conversation uh, through writing this book. So uh, I'll finish uh, with our traditional New Books Network final question, which is what are you working on or what are you thinking about these days?
1: Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I have something in the pipeline I'm just starting. Um, like many academics, I never really did enough with my doctoral dissertation. <laughs> and it was on social eating and how it affects maternal and child health. Um, but a lot of the work that I've done asks the question, uh, how, how does eating together affect our health? And so uh, I, I am very interested in writing a monograph going forward that I'm, I'm outlining now on uh, how, social eating. Uh, And I'm going to call it something like the sharing instinct because we have evolved as human beings because we have this richer diet, partly due potentially to meat, of course, but also a lot of other things that in our omnivorous environment we eat. But we also evolve as human beings because we, unlike other primates, feed our children after weaning. So we have baked into our genes sharing food. And so I really want to go forward and explore not only a a little more publishable aspect of my own research, but explore what other people have done in more detail about sharing food.
0: Well, Janet Charzan is the author, along with Kim McCargill, of Anxious Eaters, Why We Fall for Fad Diets. Thank you so much uh, for sharing your work with us uh, and really appreciate you taking the time and and doing this important work uh, to help us better understand uh, why we're all so anxious uh, and what we can do better to understand our food environment. Thank you so much, Janet.
1: Garrett, thank you. These were great questions and I really appreciate uh, being on the show.